he'll ever get out of here. Me? Yeah. One day, when I got a long white beard and two or three marbles rolling around upstairs, they let me out. I'll tell you where I'd go. Zuhatanil. Zuh? What? Zuhatanil. It's in Mexico. A little place on the Pacific Ocean. You know what the Mexicans say about the Pacific? No. They say it has no memory. That's where I want to live the rest of my life. A warm place with no memory. Open up a little hotel. Right on the beach. Buy some worthless old boat and fix it up new. Take my guests out. Charter fishing. They want to nail. In a place like that, I could use a man that knows how to get things. I don't think I could make it on the outside, Andy. I've been in here most of my life. I'm an institutional man now. It's like Brooks was. Well, you underestimate yourself. I don't think so. In here, I'm the guy who can get things for you, sure, but outside, all you need is the yellow pages. Hell, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Pacific Ocean? Shit. About to scare me to death, something that big. Not me. I didn't shoot my wife and I didn't shoot her lover. Whatever mistakes I made, I paid for them and then some. That hotel, that boat, I don't think that's too much to ask. I don't think you ought to be doing this to yourself, Andy. This is just shitty pipe dreams. I mean, Mexico is way to hell down there, and you're in here, and that's the way it is. Yeah, right. That's the way it is. It's down there, and I'm in here. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living. You get busy dying. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 250. 
the Shawshank Redemption. It's completely shocking that we're here. I know. Every milestone we hit is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, it continues to get more unbelievable as you move on. Yeah, well, someday we'll be doing episode 500. I was saying, like, <laughs> I, I can't believe we ever did 100 episodes. Now we're we're just so far past that. Yeah. It's truly shocking, and we thank everyone for listening. It makes it seem somewhat less sad that we're still doing this. So for this big monumental moment, we picked uh, what I think is the most shown TNT movie of all time. <laughs> Just always on TNT growing up. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of other accolades to go along with this sure. movie. Yes. It's one of the ultimate guy movies. A movie that you said that you liked but weren't super into, which that okay, combined yeah. with Field of Dreams, I'm starting to question. Well, you know what? You might start seeing a theme here. It's these movies that were on basic cable all the time. Other than Roadhouse. <laughs> Roadhouse is the one except I, I don't know. I, these like TV versions of these movies, I feel like they diminished for me a little bit. They diminished the, the product. I didn't really get into this movie until college, and we watched it all the time. And yeah. it was the DVD. It was not the TNT version. Yeah. No, and, and don't get me wrong. I do like this movie. I'll even go as far as to say it's a great movie. This is one of the ones that constantly shows up on people's like top five of all time lists. I'm just not there. I'm not ready to go there with it. But I've known people in my life. There's a dude who it's kind of like a joke that he doesn't like any movie besides Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, I could see that being the case for a lot of people, yeah. mostly dudes. Because there are no women in this movie. <laughs> Which, right there, I mean, that's kind of a hit for me. <laughs> <laughs> so before we jump into the Shawshank Redemption, I'm sure it's going to be a longer episode because it's a pretty long movie. There's a lot of things to talk about. But let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod, and that is a perfect place for you to let us know if you'd like a sticker. We've been mailing some out lately. That's right. It's free of charge. Just let us know. Send us your address, and we'll send it to you. Looking to do uh, more things with the merch as we move into the future. I think 2022 is going to be the year of Greatest Moments merch. I think so, yeah. A lot of big plans. It's all happening. <laughs> yeah. And you can also let us know if you have a listener request. I think we're probably only going to do one more this year, but we could get you in next year at some point. So we'll if there's the a list. specific movie you'd like us to do, let us know. We're willing to put you on the list. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. If you get a chance, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, really. Brighten up our holiday season, please. And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby on there. We'd love to know what you're watching. You can see what we're watching besides the movies we do on the show. Frankly, it's the least toxic, least horrifying that's true. social media app that There's there a, is. Yeah, that's a good point. We've never talked about that, but it really is like, uh, it's a supportive community on there. I found myself jumping into the comments a little bit on random people's accounts. Oh, no. Yeah. No, it's a, you know, we're all sort of bouncing ideas off each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm usually commenting when people review Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. <laughs> yeah, you actually might be the most toxic person on there. That was just busting your balls. <laughs> and maybe yeah. some of your friends. A lot of people 
jumping in with positive comments. Usually I rate something that you just disagree with and your comment just says, kill yourself. Oh, that never <laughs> happened. Only in real life, yeah. not in the comments. <laughs> okay, so The Shawshank Redemption, 1994. Written and directed by Frank Darabont, based on the 1982 novella called Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption by Stephen King. Yes, one of the many Frank Darabont, Stephen King adaptations. Yeah, he would later go on to do The Green Mile and The Mist. He also kicked off his career with a $1 Stephen King adaptation. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay, that's really where he uh, makes his hay. Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption was a part of a collection of novellas called Different Seasons, which I am currently listening to on Audible. It's a great little four-pack of oh. stories. Does it have different narrators or, I guess, orators? What's the word? <laughs> the person that... I think so, yeah. Okay. I'm only on the second one right now, and they do sound similar, but I think it's a different guy. All right. These stories were more drama-based rather than King's traditional genre, which would be horror. And they were broken up into different sections that correspond with seasons, hence the title. Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption was under the heading of Hope Springs Eternal. Also a part of the book were Apt Pupil, which was turned into a movie in 1998, starring Brad Renfro and Ian McClellan. Okay, that's right. And that would be under Summer of Corruption, The Body, which became Stand By Me, of in course. 1986, yes, famously, and that would be Fall from Innocence. And finally, The Breathing Method, which has yet to be adapted. I haven't read the book in a long time. I seem to remember that not really being the type of thing you could make into a movie, but who knows? And that would be under A Winter's Tale. It's a pretty good book. I recommend yeah. it for people who like Stephen King. How long is each story? I think Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption is only 96 pages, yeah, which is shocking. crazy that they the movie is so long. Get a lot of material out of it. I actually think Apt Pupil has been longer on Audible than okay. Shawshank was. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go, but I guess I would say that Shawshank is told all from the perspective of Red after mm-hmm. the fact, and it does work a little bit like the movie where it's like passages of time happen... It's really done, though, as if he's speaking to you. Like, yeah. here's a story. Shawshank Redemption is a great title, although I do love <laughs> Rita Aworth in the Shawshank Redemption. Well, we'll get to the title yeah. in a bit and some of the difficulties they had with it. I think ultimately it is a great title, but it may have led to some of the problems with the release. And okay, understood. Things. It was released into American theaters on the same day as Pulp Fiction. October 14th, 1994. Quite a momentous occasion. Yeah, wow, huge really. Year. The budget was $25 million, and the box office would eventually go on to be $58.3 million, so not really that great, hmm. although it was much worse upon its initial release, yeah. where I think it only made $16 million at the U.S. box office. But it is just one of those ones where, again, I'm like, man... I would have loved to have been an extra in this movie. Just the royalty checks from how often <laughs> this popped up on basic cable. Well, I do think that ultimately Turner owns the movie now. So oh, okay, because they bought know. Castle Rock? Yeah. Yeah. But has any film ever benefited more from a basic cable run? It's hard to say that 
any film has ever oh i know become bigger but it was also one of the top vhs rentals of all time and was the top vhs rental of 1995 so even before the reevaluation and the new appreciation because of tnt people were discovering it because of all of the academy award nominations uh-huh they actually omitted Stephen King's name from the marketing entirely because they didn't want people to think that it was more in the vein of The Shining or Cujo or something like that. Or horror-related at all, really. Yeah, I think nowadays Stephen King is his own brand. Yes. But even back in the 90s, I think it was, well, if we mention Stephen King, this is going to have certain connotations. That's people the way. People only think of it as a certain way. I would have taken it. I mean, w- growing up, all I thought about was It and The Shining. Yeah, there's going to be some monster that lives in That's the jail right. or yes. something. The post-Oscar re-release bumped up the box office total to be a little bit more respectable. And it started to gain a little bit of traction. That's something that I don't think would ever be able to happen now. I know I say that about something in virtually every episode. <laughs> but We do spend a lot of time just talking about like the current time period we're in in comparison with every other time period. Well, Although, we just spend a lot of time talking about how almost no one goes to the theaters anymore. That's true. And there, I think part of that is there's such a limited window to capture people's imagination. Yeah. And the idea of re-releasing a movie now, even if it got Academy Award nominations, I don't think it's making as much money. Yeah to change things as it did for Shawshank. And I'm certainly not criticizing the amount of time we spend talking about these things because it's probably one of the most important topics to us. <laughs> yeah, it's we like, talk about that all the time anyway. It might be, yeah, more frequent than music or TV shows even. Only slightly behind movies is time. <laughs> <laughs> the Shawshank Redemption earned seven Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture... Best Actor for Morgan Freeman, Best Adapted Screenplay for Darabont, Best Cinematography for Roger Deakins, one of the great cinematographers of all time, Best Film Editing, Best Sound, and Best Original Score. It did not win any. This was the year of Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, etc. Yeah. It was a big year. It's probably the defining year of the 90s then. It's odd because for years I hated Forrest Gump simply because I didn't feel like it deserved to win. But now that I realize that the Oscars don't really matter and I don't think it's worth getting angry every year because (laughs) this is something that we talk about also all the time, how people overreact to this stuff. I haven't seen Forrest Gump in probably 15 plus years, but without even seeing it again, I feel like my opinion has started to change and I'm more accepting of that movie now. Okay. Now that we're at a point where if that movie came out, it would be destroyed and people would flip out. Absolutely. And say, how could you do something right. like this, Tom Hanks? This is offensive. <laughs> but it was a different time. It was. I actually appreciate those Benjamin Button, Forrest Gump type things that take place over long periods of time and show you American history now. Yeah, for right. For some reason. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. But in truth, I think that the Oscars should have been divided up between Pulp Fiction and Shawshank that year. Two of the great movies ever. I still would put Pulp Fiction as Best Picture winner in my mind. Yeah. Like I said, I see Shawshank pop up in people's top five lists not infrequently. Pulp Fiction, of course, the other one that's always up there. I mean, that's pretty wild to have those both in the same year. Released on the same day. Yeah. Shawshank holds now a 9.3 
on IMDb, and it is the number one rated film on the IMDb Top 250, ahead of The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2. I don't know how much stock people put into those kind of things, but a lot of people rate it. It has the most ratings on IMDb. Right. It does speak to how many people love the film. I don't know how serious you need to take it, just because The Dark Knight is fourth now. Okay. Which, I love The Dark Knight. I I love it. But is it that iconic level? Of all the films ever made, is it the fourth best? Yeah, yeah. That seems insane. But then again, what should be? I don't know. I guess it's up to you. Along with Stand By Me, which came from the same book of novellas, Shawshank Redemption is Stephen King's favorite adaptation of his work, which is interesting that the two he likes the most are non-horror related. But I think they both capture a humanity that is always present in King's work. It's not always at the forefront. Yeah, he often obscures it with stuff that is harder for certain audiences to appreciate the same way. Uh-huh. I think there's just as much about growing up and the human condition in it as there is in Stand By Me. Sure, but th- maybe there's a little bit of darkness that there's a shadow there. Yeah, there's a lot more to it that is harder to digest, including the su- the supernatural stuff, which is also oh, yeah. a big deterrent. It's become a truly beloved film. I think, as you're saying, it does appear in most people's top fives, or a lot of people. Yeah, you see it all the time. Mostly guys, I would say. That's fair, yeah. At one point in my life, it seemed like it was mostly guys making lists out on the internet. I think that (laughs) dynamic has shifted, but... It's also in the unique position, though, because it was not such a runaway hit in the theater that a lot of people felt like they were discovering it, even though everyone was, because it was broadcast on basic cable for... 15 years an underdog quality to it yeah guess it's like the wire in that sense becoming celebrated over a much longer period of time than this instant hit yeah it got that window of time where people felt like they were the ones discovering it for the first time because it wasn't always referenced for a while that's true it wasn't as it wasn't the obvious choice Frank Darabont and Stephen King's paths first crossed in 1983 as part of Stephen King's The Dollar Deal situation, which was an arrangement where King would grant permission to students and aspiring filmmakers or theater producers to adapt one of his short stories for the staggering sum of $1. So Darabont took King up on it for a story called The Woman in the Room, which is from King's book of short stories called Night Shift. I've never seen this version. I don't know if it's available anywhere. I do know that at one point they did release like a VHS back in the day of some of these dollar deal movies. It was like a collection of them. Oh, wow. I don't think they've ever made the transfer to like DVD, though. I think they're lost to time. Not a lot of demand. Darabont might be one of the most famous people, though, that ever did it. I would think. After getting his first screenwriting credit in 1987 for A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, Darabont returned to King with $5,000 to acquire the rights to adapt Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. As it was just 96 pages and it was all told from one perspective, King didn't really see it as a movie at the time. Although, I have to agree with Darabont. I know it's not fair because I didn't read the story (laughs) until after the movie already existed. I think that even just taking the King source material, I I think you could see a movie out of it. I don't know why he thought that it was just not a movie at all. There was enough to expand on there. 
Yeah, and we'll discuss this further later as we get into the movie itself, but I think Darabont did an unbelievable job at knowing when to expand things, making all of the right choices, when to condense things down to make them simpler. For example, there's only one warden in the movie Uh rather than the warden changing over time. Okay. So it centralizes the idea of a villain at the center of the movie. And that's less clear in the story of just one centralized villain. Right. It's a unique perspective taking like a roughly 90 page story without reading it. You're like, well, how did we get to this like over two hour movie? Yeah. Well, he just takes everything and turns it into a scene. Yeah. Normally, you can't do with longer source material. Yeah, and just because it's 96 pages doesn't mean a lot happens. It still takes place over a long period of time. It just might be summarized quicker in a couple of sentences, like this happened and this happened. Stephen King never cast Darabont's check. He framed it and later returned it to Darabont with a note that read, In case you ever need bail money, love Steve. (laughs) Darabont took inspiration from a lot of different movies, And yes, some of them were prison movies, but he didn't really see it necessarily as a prison movie. He saw it first and foremost as a tall tale. So he took a lot of inspiration from Frank Capra in his two films, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, yes. He also watched Goodfellas every Sunday while making the movie, as it was a huge inspiration on how to use dialogue to illustrate the passage of time. Wow. And once I read that, while I was doing the notes for this and then watching the film, I definitely saw what they meant yeah. and where the inspiration was. Because Goodfellas is a story that feels coherent, sort yes. of like Raging Bull as well. But it takes place over such a long period of time. Right. But it all feels like one story as if it's all happening. Absolutely. And Shawshank kind of feels like that too. You are aware that time is passing, but it all feels condensed into one story. Yeah. It does have this kind of weird culmination of like, it's a wonderful life with the grim nature of Goodfellas. Yeah. The ending definitely feels like a fantasy. Yeah. It took Darabont several years after he acquired the rights to start working on it. At one point, he was partnered with Chuck Russell. I know they did the remake of The Blob. I think that was, what, 88? So that was the next year. But he had this in his back pocket for a while didn't get started for roughly five years eventually he's shopping it around it ends up at castle rock which was at one point owned by rob reiner who directed stand by me which was from the same book of short stories reiner gets very interested in the project despite the fact that there was some hesitancy because prison movies just were not popular yeah i mean that's understandable i think It's one of the reasons why this is probably isn't as high for me is the idea of prison is just not somewhere I like spending a lot of time. There are popular prison movies, but they are from other eras. By early, mid-90s, there weren't really a lot. Pam Greer in them. (laughs) I was thinking of Clint Eastwood, but okay, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Reiner makes an offer to Darabont of 2 to $3 million of basically like, hey, I want to direct this. Why don't you step aside? Go away. And it was a big temptation because Darabont had grown up poor. He didn't have a lot of money, was struggling in the industry still at this point, Uh but realized that this was his dream to do this. 
And it makes sense. He sought out Stephen King. That's right. The first chance he had money and was like, I want this story. He was invested in it. He felt like he needed to see it through. I got to tell you, would have been a tough offer for me to turn down. <laughs> His feelings on it ultimately almost are reflected in the movie itself with the get busy living, get busy dying. That's right. Where he's basically like, at some point, you have to make a choice of whether you just want to take the money or live your dream. And this was the dream I had was to make this movie. And the money wasn't really going to fulfill me in that sense. I had to make this movie. And I get it. I probably would have been interested in the money as well. (laughs) Nice little producer credit on there. Yeah. (laughs) Tough to turn down. Reiner's idea was to have Tom Cruise be Andy and Harrison Ford be Red. Wow. That would have been interesting. Shooting for the moon in 1994. Right. Other people that were considered for Andy were Tom Hanks, Kevin Costner, later Jeff Bridges, Matthew Broderick, Nick Cage, Johnny Depp, Charlie Sheen even, which would have been a whole other scene. (laughs) The goddesses. He's just talking about the goddesses. There's something laid back and reassuring about Tim Robbins in the movie, though, as Andy. He feels very much like an everyman. Absolutely. He has this calm... A little too tall for me, but laid back vibe yeah his height is strange and it does factor into the ending in a weird way where you're like right. these clothes even fit him <laughs> he's so tall for red some of the names that were considered clint eastwood paul newman gene hackman robert redford robert duvall is red not written as an african-american character no okay which i guess makes it the joke about him being irish <laughs> yes he is irish in i see yeah the book his name is never really divulged, I don't think, in the novella. So the fact that they gave him Ellis Redding as his name, uh-huh. then that actually justifies the nickname. But I think gotcha. in the novella, he's called Red because of his hair. Okay. One of the big pre-production issues that would carry over into some of the justifications for a weak box office would be the title. To this day, Morgan Freeman thinks that the title is too confusing, and that's why people didn't discover it initially. They don't know what it means. They don't know what it is. I, I had no idea, obviously. Like, just seeing this movie advertised, you're like, why is that the title they would land on? They were going with Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, but then people thought it was something to do with Rita Hayworth and that it was some kind of a biopic. That's right. That would make it obviously weirder, but I do think that's a great title still. Yeah, it's a great title for a short story. Yeah, yeah. And when you realize how Rita Hayworth factors into the story it's even better but as a movie and you're trying to sell tickets it's too confusing they actually had people show up to auditions they had women show up to audition for Rita Hayworth (laughs) when they were still calling it that (laughs) did they not get a script when they were evidently not (laughs) okay I guess there were some open casting calls and people arrived Trying to break into the business, maybe. Just showing up. Yeah, I'm here to audition for Rita Hayworth. Ultimately, Darabont always had Morgan Freeman in mind, though, for Red. And he almost instinctively knew that Freeman's voice was going to be perfect for narration. Absolutely. And this is the movie, in case you were confused or didn't realize, that kicked off the Morgan Freeman narration thing that is still ongoing to this day. Right, right. Whether it be movies, commercials, TV, whatever. That silky smooth voice. Darabont recognized that 
Although the film is set in Maine, it was filmed in Ohio, mostly at the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield, Ohio. Yikes. That seems like a dark place. Well, to this day, it was maintained by people that bought it for like a dollar when they were going to destroy it and wow. it's become this tourist attraction oh, okay. that generates millions of dollars a year. I got to tell you every time I'm driving by a prison I kind of like stop and take it all in. I don't actually pull over but I don't know. It, it it's something that can send your mind down a path whenever you're driving past a prison. <laughs> yeah, and that path depends on whether it's a men's prison or a women's prison. Like holy hell, I'm happy to not be in there. <laughs> Unless it was a women's prison, then it's like, man, it must be great in there. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. Go back into our archives and find the Black Mama, White Mama episode. That's right. Yeah. When we were really doing, you know, top-notch features. Hey, it was one trashy summer. That's true. Yeah. I wouldn't rule out another women in prison movie for a future one trashy summer. world that I'm happy to go back to at any time. I think the movie ultimately works for a lot of reasons. But it's a non-sexual love story between two men that prominently features the power of friendship, especially in the face of tremendous adversity. Yeah, not a lot of hope. And there aren't a lot of movies like this that have a male bonding friendship that isn't centered around car chases, action, adventure. It's all very steeped in drama. Right. And there isn't a lot of frills to it. It's just two guys connecting. It definitely has an understated feel. A lot of people are attracted to the Christian mysticism that they find in the film with Andy being sort of a Christ-like figure. They draw comparisons to the rooftop thing, to the Last Supper, and the Warden as the Antichrist or Lucifer. I sort of compare that to Groundhog Day, the movie, how people would project a lot of different things onto the message of the film and take away what they want from it. I'm not sure that all of those things really line up as one-to-one as they would have you believe, but I do think that there are some similarities to that idea. The way that Andy carries himself in the prison and doesn't let it get inside. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to the evils going around. Obviously, like... The characters that we meet, the convicted felons, seem a lot better than the guys who are supposed to be keeping them in the prison. That seems like the real evils. Yeah. It is something that is interesting to keep in mind when you're watching it, that Red is a convicted murderer. That's right. I don't know where they were getting this from, but I saw that Brooks is supposedly a convicted murderer who murdered his wife and daughter after a bad run in poker. Oh, wow. And Brooks is like this kindly old man. Yeah. I don't know where people were getting that from exactly. It's not in the, the novella either, but uh, who knows. But a lot of those guys are in there for long stretches. They're violent criminals. Obviously, if you want to go down that path, Ziwat Neo becomes this heavenly place, mm-hmm. this idealized version to hold up as a fantasy or That's as true. a something to aspire to yeah there is almost sort of a biblical feel on the beach at the end yeah it reminded me a little bit of jamie fox's character in collateral how he has that picture of that island oh yes in his cab it's the same idea although in the shawshank redemption he actually achieves it and we see the end result but it's the same thing you have to have that thing in mind yeah. It can even just be a state of mind. 
It doesn't even have to be a physical place. Doesn't it feel like it would have been really tough for Red <laughs> to find him? <laughs> well, I don't know anything about Mexican coastal towns, but I would imagine Zihuatanejo is pretty small. Yeah. <laughs> is there a guy that bought an old boat around here? Is there some random white guy running around yeah. <laughs> annoying everyone all He's the like time? Way taller than anyone you've ever met. <laughs> Finally, the movie strikes a chord with everyone because of the central theme of hope. And of course, redemption as well, although that's a little bit trickier because as Nick Hornby writes in yeah. his songbook about Thunder Road, you can't really make a song about redemption and use the word redemption, but it ultimately doesn't matter in Thunder Road. And it ultimately doesn't matter in the Shawshank Redemption no. either. You can just throw it into the title, and the movie is good enough where you don't mind. It's definitely it's uh, giving hope in the face of a hopeless situation. Yeah, that's basically what Andy's character is. He's this inspiration to the other guys because they've essentially given up. If Andy hadn't come into Red's life, Red's life would have ended the same way Brooks's did. Yeah, what percent of people are making it through that parole board? I don't know. We'll get to Red's final parole hearing at the end. <laughs> I find it hard to believe that what he says is <laughs> good enough to get out. He yeah. seems almost like mad at them. I get what they're going for, but right. I'm finally, like, would just, they really click approved? On I know. This? Finally, tells the truth, but yeah, I don't know. I think you're better off lying in some instances. But to be fair to Red, he tried a certain strategy for many times, and many times it failed. The Shawshank Redemption came out at a time when there was still room for nuance in these things. Again, as we've always pointed out, times have changed. I do think that. If released now, there would be a million think pieces reminding us that Red is a murderer, that the other people are prisoners who have committed crimes. So at best, they're guilty. And at worst, they're truly evil men mixed in there as well, not to mention the evil men who run the prison. But that's where the redemption part comes in. That's right. I just don't know that there's room for redemption anymore in certain people's minds. No. Could you have a sympathetic main character who was a murderer? It feels like it wouldn't be beloved. We never get the specific details of Red's crime in the movie. In the novella, he kills his wife and accidentally kills someone else because he cuts her brake lines. Oh, wow. That's pretty dark. He didn't know that she was going to pick up. I think it's like another woman and a daughter or something like It's kind of fucked up. Really? Yeah. But I don't think King was approaching it from the idea of like, well, Red has to be a character that you love. Red is a guy who made a mistake and now is paying for it because that was the idea. Like he's in prison. Maine doesn't have the death penalty. Yeah. I kind of feel like you sort of project on all of these guys that like what they did, you're finding a way to like defend it or feel like it's less bad in some way i feel like you get in this position where you want to project that all these guys well if they killed someone it was kind of an accident you know or it was like <laughs> it was like a, a, in a moment of passion or something like that and now it's been whatever 30 years well that's how red describes it in the movie so obviously the way that he premeditates this whole thing with the break lines is not i know movie canon. that's way more fucked up that's this idea that he needs to get out of this whole thing with his wife it does make it harder to root for then 
Yeah, but the movie is basically suggesting that people who commit crimes are still capable of being human beings. Definitely. And they're capable of changing. Yeah. They're capable of being reformed. And you could make one really bad decision, like cutting brake lines. Well, again, I don't think that that's movie canon. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's right. just a difference. They chose to not include that. Again, it's I, I do feel like it, it's a less redeemable crime. So let's jump into it. 1947, Portland, Maine. The opening credits of the film are over top of two things that cut back and forth. We have the night of the double homicide that will change Andy Dufresne's life forever. Andy, of course, is played by Tim Robbins. And the subsequent trial that follows. Andy's wife had been having an affair with a golf pro, and Andy found out. Yeah, imagine this happening to you. Not the whole affair thing, but... (laughs) I mean, I know it has to be this way for this movie to work, because obviously the crime has to be one that he can be convicted of. Right. So there can't be a lot of doubt there. So it has to be like this weird amount of coincidence. Right. But how insane. (laughs) Yeah, it's a one in a million type chance. Yeah. Which probably has happened in the history of the world. Right. I'm sure something like this has happened, but it's pretty rare. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it seems like that's come out at times, like people who have been released like years later. It does seem like the details around it, it felt like it was obviously them that did it just based on the details. And then you find out that they didn't. So it's kind of like there's a, a lot of sadness to which ones out there never came to light. Yeah, and this is a time before a lot of forensic evidence and different things like that. Oh, yeah, there was going to be no podcast series about <laughs> Andy Dufresne's <laughs> wife. Yeah, there was like a serial podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the time frame in which he drove to the river, it just doesn't make sense. We've spent time retracing his steps. <laughs> Mr. Dufresne, describe the confrontation you had with your wife the night that she was murdered. It was very bitter. She said she was glad I knew, that she hated all the sneaking around. She said she wanted a divorce in Reno. What was your response? I told her I would not grant one. I'll see you in hell before I see you in Reno. Those were the words you used, Mr. Dufresne, according to the testimony of your neighbors. If they say so. I really don't remember. I was upset. What happened after you argued with your wife? She packed a bag. She packed a bag to go and stay with Mr. Quentin. Glenn Quentin. (laughs) The golf pro at the Snowden Hills Country Club. The man you had recently discovered was your wife's lover. few bars first. Later, I drove to his house to confront them. They weren't home, so I parked in the turnout and waited. With what intention? I'm not sure. I was confused, uh, drunk. I think mostly I wanted to scare them. When they arrived, you went up to the house and murdered them. No, I was sobering up. I got back in the car and I drove home to sleep it off. Along the way, I stopped and I threw my gun into the Royal River. I feel I've been very clear on this point. 
Well, where I get hazy is where the cleaning woman shows up the following morning and finds your wife in bed with her lover riddled with 38 caliber bullets. Now, does that strike you as a fantastic coincidence, Mr. Dufresne, or is it just me? Yes, it does. Yet you still maintain that you threw your gun into the river before the murders took place. That's very convenient. It's the truth. The police dragged that river for three days and nary a gun was found. So there could be no comparison made between your gun and the bullets taken from the blood-stained corpses of the victims. And that also is very convenient, isn't it, Mr. Dufresne? Since I am innocent of this crime, sir, I find it decidedly inconvenient that the gun was never found. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard all the evidence. You know all the facts. We have the accused at the scene of the crime. We have footprints, tire tracks. We have bullets strewn on the ground which bear his fingerprints. A broken bourbon bottle, likewise, with fingerprints. And most of all, we have a beautiful young woman and her lover lying dead in each other's arms. They had sinned. But was their crime so great to merit a death sentence? Now, while you think about that, think about this. A revolver holds six bullets, not eight. I submit that this was not a hot-blooded crime of passion. That at least could be understood, if not condoned. Now, this was revenge of a much more brutal and cold-blooded nature. Consider this, four bullets per victim. Not six shots fired, but eight. That means that he fired the gun empty and then stopped to reload so that he could shoot each of them again. An extra bullet per lover. Right in the head. You strike me as a particularly icy and remorseless man, Mr. Dufresne. It chills my blood just to look at you. By the power vested in me by the state of Maine, I hereby order you to serve two life sentences back to back. One for each of your victims. So be it. Andy's drunk. He buys a gun. He clearly has murder or revenge on his mind, but he doesn't really know what to do. He's distraught over the situation. Well, later he said he would go on the record to say, well, I was just going to scare them. Yeah. Well, that's why he showed up at their love nest yeah. for a moment. Which is weird, though. I think it would be okay to say that he contemplated doing it and then ultimately Yeah, I think that that's... Is what's being implied. Yeah, I think yeah. so. But he was, in court, he was just saying, well, you know, I just wanted to scare him. Andy did buy a gun, although it goes missing because he throws it into the river, so they're never able to match up the bullets that killed his wife and her lover with his gun because they never find his gun. The prosecuting attorney makes a point to say that revolvers hold six bullets, but each victim was shot four times, meaning there was a reload situation. Wow. Really driving it home for the jury. Yeah. Execution style. Andy's calm 
icy looking and feeling demeanor on the stand do him no favors. That's right. When he's found guilty and then must be sentenced because the judge ultimately convicts Andy. He does seem almost sociopathic in, in court. He's sentenced to two consecutive life sentences at Shawshank State Prison. Andy, in his real life, is a successful banker, but now it's all over. We should point out that Shawshank State Prison is not real. It's not an actual prison in Maine, but it is mentioned in other Stephen King works. There's a lot of little crossover in Stephen King's books. That's right, yes. Little mentions and references and stuff. Uh Uh-huh. And Shawshank is something that gets brought up in a couple different places. It's interesting to think that different seasons came out before it even yeah that is weird early 80s is still pretty early in king's run i think carrie came out and what was that 74 something like that yeah there must be a con like me in every prison in america i'm the guy who can get it for you cigarettes a bag of reefer if that's your thing a bottle of brandy to celebrate your kid's high school graduation damn near anything within reason Yes, sir. I'm a regular Sears and Roebuck. So when Andrew Dufresne came to me in 1949 and asked me to smuggle Rita Hayworth into the prison for him, I told him, no problem. We meet Red, played by Morgan Freeman. He's in front of the parole board, 20 years into a life sentence. He's a good guy to know around Shawshank. There's a young picture of Red, and it's actually Morgan Freeman's son in that little okay. picture of when he was arrested. And I think his son has a little cameo at the beginning. He's the one yelling about the fish when the new prisoners come in. Oh, right. Of course, he's rejected. At this point in time, he's basically reciting what he thinks that the parole board would want to hear. Uh huh. It's very robotic. It gets even more robotic when he comes up for 30 years. Yeah, it's the same pitch that he tries multiple times. Andy arrives at Shawshank with a bunch of other prisoners. We have Thomas Newman's ominous score swirling all over the place. It's actually the best part of the score, maybe, is that opening segment with the wonderful helicopter overhead shots to provide the scope. All of the men running, congregating to see the new arrivals. The score is like really good there. It looks incredible. Yeah, just how depressing. Showing up at this place. Yikes. I don't know. It doesn't sound too bad to you? Yeah. I gotta I'm tell almost you, you're living a prison life right now. Apartment is decorated almost identically to Andy Dufresne's <laughs> cell. <laughs> yeah, there's just a huge poster of Rita Hayworth with yeah. a giant hole behind it. <laughs> <laughs> You've been tunneling your way out of here at night. <laughs> yeah, I like to imagine that I'm in Shawshank That's at right. all times. Yeah. You're doing like a performance art piece. Aside from the violence and the potential to be raped at any moment, prison doesn't seem like it would be that bad. Yeah, I don't think it's for me. I I don't think I would last very many days. Not interested in showering in front of everyone. I have a lot of horrible recurring dreams of, like, I did some crime and I know that they're coming to get me and my future is bleak. You just wake up in a cold sweat. It's kind of replaced my old dream of, it turns out I was enrolled in a class at college that I didn't know about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that used to be my old anxiety dream. Now it's prison. My variation of that, because I always would drop classes, was yeah. I, I forgot to drop the right. class. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
and it's like the last day and you're realizing that you're still yeah. enrolled in it. <laughs> it's weird how tons of people have that same I know. Dream. Ten years after I have been in a college oh, yeah. class, like still popping up. Now I have a dream that I still work at Dollar General. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. What wow. A dark time. Really? It's always good to see Clancy Brown. He pops up as Hadley, the captain of the prison guards, just a total psychopath. Yeah, pretty good at playing a villain. He was always the insane stepfather from Pet Cemetery 2. For me, that's where I first saw him. <laughs> All right. As a lad. Just a run of insane people. Bob Gunton plays Warden Norton. Just despicable. As mentioned, he's condensed down into one centralized villain. He's the ultimate hypocrite. He does not enforce the general rule of law, but chooses to enforce his own rules and punishments as he sees fit, becoming a law unto himself. I gotta tell you, for someone who bases a lot of their decisions in life off of movies... A warden would not be a desirable job for me. These guys are always kind of painted as douchebags in like every movie. Well, you're running a prison. (laughs) (laughs) It's an occupational hazard. Yeah. There are a lot of comparisons to be made to Richard Nixon. Obviously, the time period of this film takes place before Nixon, but the inspiration for the character, both in appearance and also just in general. Sliminess. (laughs) But this is an example of Darabont making this material his own, and he definitely understood how to adapt the novella and excavate what was essential to the story. And as I said earlier, I really think he made all the right choices in knowing when to change things, when to condense things, when to add things, what to add. And he really takes a 96-page story and makes it into this epic-feeling, long, dense movie Absolutely, that has resonated with audiences for close to 30 years now really i believe in two things discipline and the bible here you'll receive both put your trust in the lord your ass belongs to me welcome to shawshank put your trust in the lord your ass belongs to me (laughs) (laughs) welcome to shawshank that's right Oh, God. How depressing is fat ass? Pretty. (laughs) The saddest part of fat ass's existence in this movie is that if you put the closed captioning on, it refers to him as fat ass. Like, that's just his character (laughs) name. His known moniker. (laughs) So the guys take bets on which of the new recruits is going to break first. And Red actually takes Andy. You get it. Andy... Seems like whatever life he was living before this was probably a lot better than what it's about to be. He's tall, so anybody who's tall is usually successful. Turns out that fat ass breaks down the first night, which draws the ire of Hadley, who is just a violent and dangerous man Yeah, in a guard's uniform. This doesn't seem like the worst outcome for fat ass. It seems like it would have been. How long was he supposed to be in there for? Well, that's true. (laughs) I mean, I assume anybody that's coming to Shawshank gets a... This is not a short-term prison stay. Well, it was going to be for Tommy Williams later. Eh, he was still there for a while. I it's think years. only like a couple years. It's years, okay, yeah. Yeah, well, for Fat Ass, yeah, it was gonna, probably going to be a couple of years Yeah, at least. I don't think Fat Ass, even if it, let's say a two-year sentence, I don't think he's coming out of here the same person he was before that sentence. 
So you think death is preferable? I, I think so, yeah. <laughs> I think that's fair. Hadley beats the shit out of him with a nightstick and then has him taken to the infirmary, but the doctor has already left for the night and fat ass ends up dying. And it's a bucket of cold water on the head for all of the new people at Shawshank. It's the harsh reality mm-hmm. of what this place is really like. No investigation. Early on in Andy's stay at Shawshank, he encounters Boggs, played by Mark Ralston, who we would remember from The Departed. That's right. And that might be like the only thing wow. that I ever saw him in besides this. Yeah. Boggs, he's got his own M.O., He's the leader of a group called the Sisters who like to take men by force, let's say. I don't know, when they were coming up for a name for their group, I don't know if Sisters would have been my first choice. Well, somebody might have started calling them that. Oh, yeah. But there's trouble brewing on the horizon for Andy as far as the Sisters are concerned. But time is passing. Andy's slowly adjusting to life on the inside. One day after weeks of mostly keeping his mouth shut, Andy approaches Red. Red is a man who can get things. He's a prison contraband smuggler. Andy wants a rock hammer. So let's talk about a rock hammer. Just... All right. It'll come up later. Okay, yeah. It's about six or seven inches. It's a little hammer designed for people who are into, like, gems and rocks. This seems like it would be of the harder things to get in, even though it's small It is a weapon, so you would think, obviously you're relying on people breaking rules. Yes. Right? And you would think it's a risk for someone to break a rule over something that could be used as a weapon. Oh, it definitely is. Yeah. How many packs of cigarettes? Red is definitely hesitant to get involved with this. But he understands, I guess, instinctively that Andy is not going to use it as a weapon. And so the chances of it getting traced back to Red decrease Mm -hmm. because even if they find it they're going to confiscate it but i'd be like you know i see boggs fucking around with you all the time i mean i just that's what yeah that's exactly what red brings up now in the novella it should be noted that by the end of the story andy has had to replace the original rock hammer okay that's probably a little bit more plausible it's not just one but as far as we know in the film, there's just the one. Right. It's, uh, I gotta tell you, a pretty effective tool. Andy asks Red why he's known as Red, and Red makes the joke, maybe it's because I'm Irish, mm-hmm. and laughs. Although, if his name is Redding, I think the nickname is... Self-explanatory? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that convinces Red to like Andy, I think, is explained to us in this first conversation with red's narration it's basically andy's refusal to let shawshank change him to let it get to him there's this defiance that is eroded in the rest of the prisoners he does keep his resolve despite many a bad thing happening to him he refuses to become institutionalized which is something that red introduces in the movie where a man just becomes so used to that life yeah and he stands out for that because He's the only one, really. And it's further illustrated later in the film after he plays that record. That's right. And he talks yes. about the effect of music and how he keeps the music inside. And he's trying to explain this to the other guys. And they are completely baffled by this. <laughs> yeah. 
because they're so beaten down. Right. They don't have the joy of music inside them anymore. That kind of feeling is long gone. I enjoy the running bit that everyone is innocent. That's yeah. Like a fun <laughs> gag going around. Lawyer, fuck for? me. I didn't do it. It kind of like diminishes the fact that he really maintains his innocence because it's like, well, that's just what everyone says. Yeah, in a way, it opens his eyes to how pointless it is to yeah, bring that up. Right, and why everyone would just roll their eyes at it. Yeah, what difference is it going to make to these people? You're not yeah. going to convince them of anything. Andy gets assigned to laundry duty, and that is where things go awry as far as the sisters are concerned. And this is one of the moments where the film starts jumping in time, and when you actually stop to think about it, it's fucking horrifying and brutal. Yes, it is. Because Red is basically saying that Andy is tormented sexually by the sisters for two years. Yes. This goes on. And he never gives in, though. He always tries to fight them off. To maintain your resolve through that. Yeah. I mean, I think I would be a broken man even without all of this. (laughs) I don't know how I would. I I couldn't live. I would be trying to force the guards to beat me to death. (laughs) (laughs) Please. Yeah. Well, Red does say that if what happens next didn't happen and it kept going on that way, that he doesn't think that Andy would have been able to survive. And I do like the way that they introduce it in the movie or the way that it's kind of captured in the narration where it's like, I'd love to tell you what you thought was going to happen didn't happen, but that wouldn't be the reality. Yeah. Okay, we are seeing the stark reality here. This is not all a tall tale fantasy movie. Right. But it's a two-hour and 20-minute movie, and this is like the first 20 minutes. Yeah. Which is funny, because you forget later on, you know, I saw this movie probably 10, 15 times, and then didn't see it for a long time, and you forget how compartmentalized it is. The sister's incident is all kept at the very beginning, and then you move on to something else. It's actually, oddly enough, not that dissimilar from Clueless in that sense. (laughs) Obviously, the subject matter and the approach is much different, but... It just moves from one thing to the next. Well, the nice thing about our lead character here is he's kind of able to build off things. So once his journey starts down a certain path, he's able to keep building it up, albeit with some (laughs) bumps in the road along the way. So you're saying Andy is the lead character? I think so. I've never taken it as Red is. Red is... He's the definitely the, the lead character, but... Okay. <laughs> uh, how is it a movie about Red, though? It's not about Red. Okay. But Morgan Freeman was nominated for Best Actor. Yeah, I know, which I think is weird. I would consider... He obviously has way more lines. I, f- I feel like it's a movie about Andy Dufresne. No, it is. It's about Andy's impact as told by yeah. the other people. Yeah, I'm just busting your balls. But okay. yeah, I think they're co-leads, though. Sure. Okay, that's fair. In the spring of 1949, things take a turn for Andy. A handful of men are to be selected for an outdoors project, resurfacing the roof of the license plate factory, which I assume is just part of the campus of the prison. Sure. I don't think I realized that when I was younger, but then I was listening. I'm like, oh, they said license plate. Oh, they used to make license plates in prison. Okay. This is all part of the same uh-huh, place. Right. I thought they actually got to go somewhere. Well, I think it's pretty clear based on where it's filmed, though, that it, they're still at the prison. All right. All right. Okay. Rub it in. Fair enough. <laughs> I couldn't tell, all right, yeah, yeah. when I was younger. That's all right. I didn't notice. I thought they got to go somewhere. No, it's fine. I'm not here to make you live in shame. 
You're uh, just here to make me do this podcast. That's which is right. basically the same. Pretty thing. much, yeah. <laughs> Red pulling some strings though to make sure that his crew is the ones that get picked. Yeah, the fix is in so that Red, Andy, and Red's friends get picked. It wasn't a hundred percent clear if Andy was a part of that or if he, it was a coincidence he got picked too. Okay. Because was he that close to Red by this point? It was hard to tell. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. It just was a pack of cigarettes a man to make this happen. Not bad. Yeah, even though it's hard labor up on a roof, literally... Anything to do anything with your day. Anything for a change of pace is yeah. so welcome. Just anything different. Even probably to be able to like do that and be tired at the end of the day. You yeah. know what I mean? Would just be so welcome. While up on the roof, Andy overhears Hadley complaining about being taxed on an inheritance and offers to help him shelter the windfall legally. So anyway, this lawyer fella says to me, your brother died a rich man, oil wells and shit, close to a million bucks. A million bucks? Yeah, fucking incredible how lucky some assholes get. Jeez Louise, you gonna see any of that? 35,000, that's what he left me. Dollars? Yep. Holy shit, that's great, that's like one in the sweepstakes, isn't it? Dumb shit, what do you think the government's gonna do to me? Take a big wet bite out of my ass is what? Poor Barry. Terrible fucking luck, huh? Crying shame. <laughs> Some people really got it awful. Andy, you nuts. Keep your ass on your mark, man. Andy. Well, all right, you're gonna pay some taxes, but you'll still end up with... Oh, what? yeah, yeah, maybe enough to buy a new car, and then what? I gotta pay tax on the car. Repair, maintenance, goddamn kids pestering you to take them for a ride all the time. At the end of the year, you figure the tax wrong, you gotta pay him out of your own pocket. I tell you, Uncle Sam, he puts his hand in your shirt and squeezes your tit till it's purple. The man never gets a break. That's the deal. You said rich getting yourself killed. Keep talking. No. Some brother. Shit. Hey. Mr. Hadley, do you trust your wife? Oh, that's funny. You're gonna look funnier sucking my dick with no teeth. What I mean is, do you think she'd go behind your back, try to hamstring you? That's it. Step aside, Mert. This fucker's having himself an accident. You don't push him off the roof. Because if you do trust her, there's no reason you can't keep that 35,000. What did you say? 35,000. 35,000? All of it. All of it? Every penny. You better start making sense. If you want to keep all that money, give it to your wife. The IRS allows a one-time only gift to your spouse for up to $60,000. Bullshit. Tax-free? Tax-free. IRS can't touch one cent. You're that smart banker would kill his wife, aren't you? Why should I believe a smart banker like you? So I can end up in here with you? It's perfectly legal. Go ask the IRS. They'll say the same thing. Actually, I feel stupid telling you this. I'm sure you would have investigated the matter yourself. Yeah, fucking A. I don't need no smart wife killing banker to tell me where the bear's sitting in the buckwheat. Of course not. But you do need someone to set up the tax-free gift for you, and that'll cost you. A lawyer, for example. Bunch of ball-washing bastards. Right. I suppose I could set it up for you. That would save you some money. If you get the forms, I'll prepare them for you. Nearly free of charge. I'd only ask three beers apiece for each of my co-workers. <laughs> co-workers? Get him. That's rich, ain't it? I think a man working outdoors feels more like a man if you can have a bottle of suds. It's only my opinion. Sir. What are you, Jimmy, staring at? Back to work! Let's go, work! 
And that's how it came to pass that on the second to last day of the job, the convict crew that tarred the plate factory roof in the spring of 49 wound up sitting in a row at 10 o'clock in the morning drinking icy cold Bohemia-style beer, courtesy of the hardest screw that ever walked a turn at Shawshank State Prison. Drink up while it's cold, ladies. The colossal prick even managed to sound magnanimous. We sat and drank with the sun on our shoulders and felt like free men. Hell, we could have been tarring the roof of one of our own houses. We were the lords of all creation. As for Andy, he spent that break hunkered in the shade, a strange little smile on his face, watching us drink his beer. This is one of the standout scenes of the movie, for sure. It's the moment where Andy takes his situation, applies his prior knowledge from life, and stands up and almost takes control of his destiny in a certain way. That's right. He could have definitely let this pass, and he would just be stuck in the same situation, but he takes this big chance. Well, I think there's a little bit of a red inspiration, the idea that you can kind of leverage things to help get yourself into a better position or gain favors from perhaps some of the guards or... Yeah, that might be true, but he's taking it to a level that even Red would be oh, scared yeah. of. Oh, yeah, Red is stunned. <laughs> They're he all gets, like, don't talk to him. Yeah, Hadley has a hair-trigger temper, and he's insane. Yeah. He's basically dragging him to the side of the roof, saying someone's going to have an accident. He's yeah, just going to throw him off a roof. <laughs> now, I know, it doesn't really fair, seem like a guy to try to negotiate with. To be fair, the way that Andy approaches it is a little unconventional basically starting with do you trust your wife right (laughs) he means in a financial sense but of course the implication would be that hadley's wife do you trust her not to cheat on you which of course is immediate grounds for a beatdown. it sounds like he's talking shit but he's able to convince hadley that he knows what he's doing and that he knows what he's talking about and that hadley could keep all of the inheritance because of some IRS rule where you're allowed a one-time gift to a spouse that's tax-free. So as long as he trusts his wife not to fuck him over for the money, that he could keep all of it by giving it to her. And Andy ultimately helps Hadley, and all he wants in return is a couple of beers for each of the guys. Andy really looking out for everyone but himself because he doesn't even drink anymore after the incident that put him in there. That's right. And the beers ultimately signify so much more than just a beer as red it's like so a eloquently sense of puts it normalcy yeah it's getting to feel like a real man like a real human being that's right as if they were just working on their buddy's roof or the something true enjoyment after a hard day's labor yeah as if they were up there by choice almost right like this is just what we're doing we're helping our friend with this roof and we're all relaxing now and having that's a beer. right the sun is setting this of course raises Andy's reputation amongst the men, and it kicks off a whole segment of his time in prison that will ultimately lead to the downfall of the warden, the downfall of Hadley, and a windfall of cash for Andy himself. But it's a long journey to get there. (laughs) (laughs) But this is what kicks it off. Hey, I know all about this kind of stuff. That's right. I can help you. And that's what I was trying to allude to. I mean, he kind of like starts this journey and then is able to kind of keep building upon that. We learned that Red is a murderer. <laughs> I feel like this is the third time I've mentioned it. I just want everyone to remember that. Is that clear? That. 
on movie night in the prison, they're watching Gilda, which is a film that I love. But back when I was watching this movie all the time, I had never seen. It's a pretty cool moment in the movie that they get to do almost by accident because in the novella, the film they're watching is The Lost Weekend. Oh. The Billy Wilder yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. Because the whole point is that they have to watch movies that have some sort of a moral and the moral of the lost weekend is drinking is bad basically. Mm. And that was like the reason they were allowed to watch it. So I should watch the lost weekend. Darabont was staying true to everything. and was like, okay, well we should try to get the lost weekend. Then it proved to be too expensive. I'm assuming because it was another studio and the other studio was like, well, we're not helping you out with that. <laughs> of course. So they were presented with a list of films that were cheap that they could put in here. And what a perfect way to tie in Rita Hayworth herself than have it be Gilda. Sure. Probably her best movie, a movie she's the star of. The scene that they show is the great scene. It's one of the best character introductions ever. That's right. When her husband (laughs) comes in, it's like, Gilda, are you decent? This is the first time you see her. And she just like snaps her head back with her hair flowing and says, who, me? (laughs) Ha ha. It's unbelievable for the 40s. It's like, it's so great. And of course, she's so beautiful. And everyone in the audience in the prison is just losing their goddamn People minds. just falling out of their chairs. <laughs> yeah, they're basically reacting how like we would react to movies now. <laughs> like high-fiving each other. <laughs> oh, yeah, pretty woman, yeah. <laughs> so Andy has a new request for Red, which is a poster of Rita Hayworth. But it's funny that they don't ever mention poster. He's just like, I need you to get me Rita Hayworth. That's right, yeah. Red's like, all right, well, it'll take me a couple weeks. And Andy's response is, a couple weeks? And Red is just like, well, I don't have Rita Hayworth in my pants right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's not down my pants. But they're talking about a poster, but it's just, you know, it's funny. That's right. Where's the canary? How did you know? How did I know her? So you don't know. Come This is where the canary is, Johnny. Quite a surprise to hear a woman singing in my house, eh, Johnny? That's quite a surprise. Red. Ah, wait, 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 wait. Here she comes. This is the part I really like, just when she does that shit with her hair. Oh, yeah, I know. I've seen it three times this month. Ah. Gilda, are you decent? Me? God, I love it. <laughs> I understand you're a man that knows how to get things. Yeah, I'm known to locate certain things from time to time. What do you want? Rita Hayworth. What? Can you get her? So this is Johnny Farrell. I've heard a lot about you, Johnny Really? Take a few weeks. Weeks? Well, yeah, Andy. I don't have a stuff down in front of my pants right now, I'm sorry to say. But I'll get her. Relax. Getting in good with a screw like Hadley has its advantages. The sisters come for Andy again, this time nearly killing him. Yeah, Hadley uh, doesn't take too kindly to that. And when Boggs finishes his sentenced time in solitary, afterward, Hadley is there waiting, beating and crippling him 
which ultimately gets Boggs transferred to a minimum security hospital because he's now unable to walk. A little odd to me because as you go on with the Hadley character, it's clear that he remains a bad dude whose loyalty to Dufresne I don't think is unwavering by any means. It seems odd. to I feel like the more you go on with the Hadley character, you look back on their first exchange with the beers as like a one-off transaction that happened and now it's kind of done. We don't have like this lasting relationship, but I don't know. He obviously didn't like what Boggs did and takes matters into his own hands. Yeah, I think sometimes traditionally in movies that this would signify some sort of a turning a baby face turn yeah. for Hadley. It's not really that. No. It's still very transactional. The timeline is a little muddled. It's possible that Andy has already started helping others and so now he has he's this valuable tool. That's true. He's going to do yeah. taxes for people, he's going to do other things. I don't think that's quite been introduced yet, but right. it's all sort of amorphous. Maybe Hadley sees the potential. And let's be honest, any excuse. <laughs> To beat the shit out of That's someone, right, yeah. he's going to take it. And so if it becomes clear that Boggs is giving Andy a tough time, why the hell not beat yeah. the shit out of him? <laughs> yeah, it's a tough finish for Boggs. Whatever Hadley's motivation is, ultimately Andy is now left alone. He's got a little bit of protection over him. But once Boggs is gone, the sisters disappear from the narrative altogether. Not that we ever really knew them. But there is no more threat from other prisoners. That's just gone from the movie. Formerly known as the Sisters. (laughs) Yeah. They're rebranding. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) It's a long overdue rebrand. Yeah. Let's introduce a few of the other side characters. William Sadler plays Haywood. James Whitmore plays Brooks. David Proval as Snooze. Richie April. Yeah, that's right. Recognizable. There's also Jigger, Floyd, Skeet. Bunch of random dudes. One of them is played by that bootleg movie guy from Seinfeld, the one that okay. yeah. <laughs> See, here we forces go. Jerry to right. bootleg a movie. Warden Norton meets Andy, sizes him up, and then reassigns him to the prison library to assist Brooks. So this right here is maybe your indication of why Hadley would have done that. Uh-huh. Andy's already on the warden's radar, and... They see his usefulness for some of their schemes that they're going to be cooking. Oh, up. yes. In reality, though, it's a front to allow Andy to manage financial matters for other prison staff and then eventually guards from other prisons before finally the warden himself. He's essentially a free tool at their disposal. Andy also begins writing weekly letters to the state legislature requesting funds to improve the prison's decaying library. Yeah, you got to give it to Andy. Really not a quitter. <laughs> Cannot imagine <laughs> writing letters for All you've I, got is time. I I know that's true, but it's like you got to be like these are going straight in the trash every well, week. I know it it works out. They, he cracks through. I know. Andy and Red are summoned to the library one day when Brooks is having a meltdown. He has a knife to Haywood's throat. And the long and the short of it is that Brooks's parole has come through and he doesn't want to leave. Oh yeah. There's just so much sadness to the whole Brooks run. Really from the beginning when you meet him, but man, just what a bummer. I gotta tell you, once he gets out and starts talking about not being able to deal with the speed of 
the world Life, out there. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the way I feel all the time. <laughs> <laughs> There's even like an additional layer of sadness in the novella too, because his little bird Jake. Oh, after he leaves, and what happens with him happens. They actually find Jake dead. Oh no. <laughs> It's almost like an additional fuck you. Yeah, really. Like, why even have that? <laughs> I know that part when he's talking about like feeding the birds and always hoping that Jake sh- is going to show up. Oh, yeah. Single tear rolling down my cheek. I just don't understand what happened in there. That's all. Old man's crazy as a rat in a tin shit house is what. Oh, hey, well, that's enough out of you. I already had you sitting in your pants. Fuck you. Don't you knock it off? Brooks ain't no bug. It's just... Just institutionalized. Institutionalized my ass. The man's been in here 50 years, Hayward. 50 years. This is all he knows. In here, he's an important man. He's an educated man. Outside, he's nothing. Just a used-up con with arthritis in both hands. Probably couldn't get a library card if he tried. You know what I'm trying to say? Fred, I do believe you're talking out of your ass. You believe whatever you want, Floyd. But I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. Shit. We can never get like that. Oh, yeah? Say that when you've been here as long as Brooks has. Goddamn right. They send you here for life. That's exactly what they take. Part that counts anyway. Brooks is paroled in 1954 after serving 50 years, but he cannot adjust to the outside world and eventually hangs himself. It's almost like a poignant short film in the middle of this much larger story. You see him leave the jail, and he starts narrating it through his letter back to the prison. That's right. Start to finish, you could cut that section out, and it would be a couple-of-minute short film. I know. It's great. They use it to like kind of set up Red starting to go through the same motions, which I kind of wish they didn't. I wish it it, it was just just the Brooks standalone experience. Brooks was here. He carves into that little thing on the ceiling right yeah before you got to give it to darabon for the way he sets up this scene it almost feels like it comes out of nowhere even though it's obvious where brooks is heading yeah but the way he does it all right that's weird why is he like standing on a (laughs) chair and then a desk because they don't show any like rope or anything right well he's packing a suitcase yeah yeah. right the way that the narration is going it seems like he's almost gonna leave or something right somewhere so then he's packing his suitcase, and then, uh, why is he standing on this desk? Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Dear fellas, I can't believe how fast things move on the outside. I saw an automobile once when I was a kid, but now they're everywhere. The world went and got itself in a big damn hurry.
parole board got me into this halfway house called the Brewer and a job bagging groceries at the foodway. It's hard work, and I try to keep up, but my hands hurt most of the time. Make sure your man double bags. Last time he didn't double bag, and the bottom near came out. Make sure you double bag, like the lady says, understand? Yes, sir, surely will. I don't think the store manager likes me very much. Sometimes after work, I go to the park and feed the birds. I keep thinking Jake might just show up and say hello, but he never does. I hope wherever he is, he's doing okay and making new friends. I have trouble sleeping at night. I have bad dreams like I'm falling. I wake up scared. Sometimes it takes me a while to remember where I am. Maybe I should get me a gun and rob the foodway so they'd send me home. I could shoot the manager while I was at it, sort of like a, a bonus. I guess I'm too old for that sort of nonsense anymore. I don't like it here. I'm tired of being afraid all the time. I've decided not to stay. I doubt they'll kick up any fuss. Not for an old crook like me. But when you think about it, it's almost unimaginable how much the world changed in 50 years. Oh, I know. From 1904 to 1954. Well, it's kind of like the way he talks about cars. Like he is like, I think I saw a car one time. And now they're everywhere. <laughs> if you had this experience now, like if you went into prison, whatever, 30 years ago, and now you're out and like every single person is just like cell phones and access to like all information at all times. Wouldn't that just be like so overwhelming? It would. But they have television now. That's true. Yeah, so people know. Think about how... That's right, yeah. He is like... That's how fucked up it was, too, because yeah, they yeah. didn't have any programs for cons to 
get back into society. I mean, obviously he has help getting the job at the grocery store and that's pretty much it. Yeah. But there's no program to help people rematriculate back into even the job is you know you're having to deal with the demands of service they didn't have the walmart greeter positions available where you (laughs) really are just standing there brooks is expected to you know he's got a double bag (laughs) these groceries yeah it's rough but yeah the whole thing would come as such a shock yes because you didn't even see it on tv your head would explode you would would have no idea what's going on anymore In response to six years, so time is definitely moving again, of letters from Andy, the legislature sends $200 and boxes of donated books and materials. Amongst the items is a recording of The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart, which Andy plays an excerpt of over the public address system when the guard that should be there is taking a shit. Who was kind of a Andy supporter. Yeah, More although so. probably not after that. No. He really fucked him over. <laughs> yeah. Locks him in the bathroom. Right. <laughs> Why is there a lock on the outside of the bathroom? That is strange. But whatever. Old doors. <laughs> you know, that's the best way I can explain it. <laughs> and it's another one of those iconic scenes because of the way the prisoners react to hearing the music. It's like time stands still. And they all stand and look up at the broadcast system. People are sitting up out of beds in the infirmary. Everyone just freezes because they don't know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of comparable to in Saving Private Ryan when they're like listening to that music right before the last battle sequence. Yeah. This moment of beauty in an otherwise horrific life and existence. <laughs> That's like me in your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really. Every last man at Shawshank felt free, as Red puts it. It was Tim Robbins' idea... To turn the music up. Doubles down on it. Yeah, when the warden starts banging on the door and tells him to turn it off. Yeah. Well, it is this weird moment for Andy Dufresne, really, because he's kind of been not just an asset, but he's really kind of helped Hadley and the warden and these other people. It kind of seems like he wants to gain favor with them. And then this is like a, a defiant fuck you moment where once he's in, he just continues to piss them off. Yeah. They treat him not as an equal, not as someone helping them, but as a dog, basically, who can perform a trick for them. True. And that's how they think of him. But by doing things like this, it's clear that he's never letting that get in his head. It never can touch his soul, which is basically what he tries to explain to them after he gets two weeks of solitary for this. He tries to explain it to the other prisoners. Oh, yeah. And he talks about the music and... They're all very institutionalized. They wouldn't have the balls no. to do this. In fact, I've, they find a lot of his antics kind of puzzling, really. <laughs> yeah, until he's gone, and then they can't stop talking about yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> this legend. And it really signifies one of the central themes of the film, which is hope. And the music itself, as you put it, this moment of beauty in an otherwise horrifying world, or whatever you said. Yeah, Absolutely. And that is, by the way, when people ask me about the person I do this podcast with, that is how I describe you. (laughs) There's something inside that they can't get to, that they can't touch. It's yours. What are you talking about? Hope. Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope. It's a dangerous thing. 
open drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. You better get used to that idea. Like Brooks did. So now we're 10 years into Andy's sentence, and the only way we know that is because Red is up for another parole hearing, and he's in now for 30 years for his murder. Yeah, which, when you start getting into that thing of, like, I've lived more years of my life in prison than I did outside of prison. Yeah. And that's when you start going through these, like, parole hearing motions and stuff. You are just like, how is this even the same person as they were Right. 30 years ago. I turned 21 in prison, doing <laughs> life without parole. Oof. The poster in Andy's cell changes to Marilyn Monroe, and he continues writing the legislature, doubling down his efforts twice a week instead of just Which once. Which is also uh, a moment of defiance, because when in the first letter that they sent with the check and the books and everything, it was basically like, Please take this. We now consider this matter closed. Yeah. Shut up. (laughs) Stop bothering us. And his letter writing campaign pays dividends. They're able to expand the library. They get $500 a year set aside. They get more books, more space, and they name it the Brooks Hatlin Memorial Library. Just a tear in the eye for old Brooksy. I'm a little surprised that the warden kind of lets this continue to go along. The warden is a shitbag, but there is a certain benefit to allowing some stuff like this. Yeah. It takes up time. It gives these people a project. You can't just have them not doing anything because then it's going to turn right violent all the time. Chaos. And yeah. You, you have to try to placate the prisoners at some point. That's and right. Yeah. He could punish them by taking it away or whatever, but... It's a relatively harmless thing. Yeah. Warden Norton actually kicks off his, quote, inside-out project or program. In 1963, Norton begins exploiting prison labor for public works, profiting by undercutting skilled labor costs and receiving bribes. Yeah, I mean, this is basically organized crime at this point. I don't know if you're supposed to take it that there was other things going on. I mean, obviously, like... He seems like not a great dude, but this is a whole other level of corruption at this point. Yeah, and it's also slave labor. Right. You have a workforce that you don't have to pay. Yeah. Of course you're going to be able to underbid the other people. <laughs> really? And so whenever they're begging him not to go for certain jobs, they have to bribe him, and all of a sudden he has all this money. That's part of it too. Rolling yeah. in. Andy's keeping the books, and it really transforms into this huge shady operation Andy launders all of this money that's coming in using the alias Randall Stevens. And as he tells Red, I had to come to prison to become a crook. That's right, yes. The movie takes another twist and an unexpected turn when in 1965, a young prisoner named Tommy Williams, played by Gil Bellows. A new character. How refreshing. Who I know mostly from Ally McBeal. Yeah. (laughs) But he's been in tons of movies. That's right. He's got a very recognizable face. He's incarcerated for burglary. Tommy's got a big personality. He's styled like a rockabilly singer or maybe an Elvis Presley knockoff. And the other boys in Shawshank really take to him immediately. He's very likable and gregarious. 
Andy eventually takes him on as a long-term project so that Tommy can get his GED. Originally, they were looking at Brad Pitt for this part, but he had moved on because of the success of his time in Thelma and Louise. I feel like he's too good-looking. And he ends up in seven in the same year, so uh-huh. th- or the, the next year. So he was already moving up. He wasn't taking Becoming a big-time star. The poster changes to Raquel Welch. This will be the last poster Andy puts up. There are more in the novella. I can't remember who the last one is. Yeah. It's like Linda Ronstadt or something. Oh, what does he do with the discarded posters? I don't know. Sells them for a pack of cigarettes? Probably throws them away. Yeah. Wow, what a waste. Well, the Rita Hayworth one seemed to be up for almost 10 years. I'm sure the poster was sort of ratty. (laughs) It lost its appeal. I don't think there's a lot of good air quality there's no dust and that's true he's not you would think it's not like a a stone wall or whatever like a cement wall you would you think it's just would kind of be prone to like ripping yeah tattered eventually tommy reveals to red and andy that his cellmate at another prison had bragged to tommy about his crimes that's right yeah i guess tommy's kind of made his way around the circuit yeah he's been to a few prisons as Andy points out, maybe it's time to think of a new profession since you don't seem to be that good of a thief. <laughs> really? Constantly in jail. His cellmate, though, tells him of these crimes, including one that perfectly matches the description of the murders for which Andy was convicted. Unlike a lot of other films that dabble in ambiguity, I don't think there's supposed to be any here. In the novella, it's pretty clear as well. The idea is that Tommy knows details on his own yeah right before prompted by anyone that lend credence to this story Uh uh-huh because until you actually see who kills andy's wife and her lover you could theoretically believe it was andy sure they don't ever show you who did it his defense is sort of questionable (laughs) yeah and there's no one else to pin it on right so he ends up getting convicted and for all we know he could have really done it because it seems so weird that this would be a random home invasion i don't think that the viewer ever really feels that he did i didn't it's not that type of a movie right you sort of just believe him you believe in this guy and to add in with the coincidence of him getting convicted for this murder that he was contemplating doing and then decided against Uh uh-huh now he's in prison with a guy who just so happened to share a cell with someone who's bragging about actually committing that crime. It's very fortuitous. We've been friends a long time, so I know him as good as anybody. Smart fella, ain't he? Smart as they come. Must be a banker on the outside. What's he in here for, anyway? Murder. What the hell you say? <laughs> you wouldn't think it to look at the guy. Caught his wife in bed with some golf pro. Greased them both. What? About four years ago, I was in Thomaston on a two to three stretch. Stole a car. It's a dumb fuck thing to do. About six months left to go. Get a new cellmate in. Elmo Blatch, big, twitchy fucker. Kind of roomy you pray you don't get, you know what I'm saying? Six to 12, armed burglary. 
Said he pulled hundreds of jobs. Hard to believe how strong as he was. He cut a loud fart. He jumped three feet in the air. Talked all the time, too. That's the other thing. He never shut up. Places he'd been, jobs he pulled, women he fucked, even people he killed. People gave him shit. That's how he put it. So, one night, like a joke, I say to him, I say, yeah, Elmo, who'd you kill? So he says, I got me this job one time, busting tables at a country club so I could case all these big, rich pricks that come in. So I pick out this guy, go in one night and do his place. He wakes up, gives me shit. So I killed him. Him and this tasty bitch he was with. <laughs> and that's the best part. She's fucking this prixie, this golf pro, but she married some other guy. <laughs> some hotshot banker. <laughs> and he's the one they pinned it on. Andy then brings this information to Norton, fully convinced that this could be the thing that finally saves him. I gotta say, this is a, a great performance in this scene because I kind of buy into Norton's attempt at manipulation here. Yeah. Where he's basically like, oh, Andy, you idiot. <laughs> this guy has taken a liking to you. You know, he's obviously just making this up. Do you know what the chances of this actually being real are? And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Warren's got a point. Norton refuses to listen at all, and when Andy mentions the money laundering, Norton sends him back to solitary. Do you think um, month in the hole the warden likes being called obtuse? No, he doesn't like anybody questioning him at all. Yeah, which is definitely a characteristic of a massive hypocrite like him uh-huh. and, and a narcissist, maybe too. I think it strikes a chord when uh, Andy it's, has some wise being obtuse. It's more than just the fact that Andy is doing this shady shit for him and he's afraid of Andy spilling the beans. That's obviously a huge part of it. For sure. But it's also the fact that he doesn't want to lose this tool. Well, he doesn't like it when Andy brings that up, for sure. He reacts fairly viscerally when Andy's like, listen, if you're worried about me saying anything about us doing this. Well, he doesn't even want it mentioned that he's doing anything wrong. Right. It's supposed to be like this unspoken thing. Yeah, yeah. he's this pious blowhard. But yeah, and that is a part of it. But it's also just the fact that even if he trusted Andy to not say anything, he doesn't want to lose this tool. He doesn't think of Andy as a man with any hope or desire for a future. He's this right. nothing that he uses as a tool to do his bidding to, to get further more money. his business. So he wants total control over Andy at all times, and he doesn't like any defiance or any pushback on that. And then, yes, he's insulted personally when Andy calls him obtuse. (laughs) (laughs) While Andy's locked away, Norton has Hadley murder Tommy under the guise of an escape attempt. After one month, Andy tries to quit the laundering, but ultimately is forced to relent after Norton threatens to destroy the library, remove his protection from the guards, and move him from his one-bunk cell into worse conditions. Yeah, it's kind of an eye-opening moment, actually, in the movie, because he's come so far 
and you kind of forget how weak his position actually is. And it's sort of like the warden throws water on all of our faces here because you are just like, man, this can quickly just go back to a group like the sisters just fucking with Andy all the time. Yeah, it's a tenuous situation. He hasn't really improved much in his standing, even though on the surface it looks like it. Right. He gets to have certain perks, but those perks are not permanent. The carpet can be ripped out from under him at any time. And I don't know that Andy is ever going to be eligible for parole since he's serving consecutive life sentences rather than concurrent. It feels like a stretch. But if he was, because he is in the novella. From what we see on screen, it's a pretty high rejection rate. Well, if he was, Uh the warden would probably influence it in some underhanded way so that he wouldn't be released. Right. You could always make it look like he wasn't a model prisoner and have these black marks against him. and So he's basically stuck under the warden's thumb, or so it seems. Uh-huh. Finally, after two long months, Andy is released from solitary. And he has undergone a, a noticeable change, I'd say, after this. Well, the murder of Tommy is the last straw. That's right. We can talk about it when we get there, but I think that you could perceive it that he could have done what he did earlier if he wanted to, but he's sort of unsure. He's nervous and he's waiting, and this is the thing that pushes him over the edge. That's right. It isn't all just like perfect timing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even though it seems that way, it's more like a decision is made for him now. Well, I mean, I'm sure that that sewer pipe was always a deterrent. <laughs> <laughs> Andy tells Red about Zihuataneo, a Mexican coastal town where he wants to live the rest of his life. At this point, Red is just like, this guy is just insane now. What's he babbling about? Yeah, Red is skeptical, but Andy knows this is his dream. It's his hope. It's what keeps him going. Get busy living or get busy dying. Absolutely. Andy also tells Red of a specific hayfield near Buxton asking Red, once he is released, to retrieve a package that Andy has buried there. What's this all about? (laughs) I know it's a big part in the movie, but it's like, why the specificity of this place? It's a place that he feels is special to him. Uh It's where he made love to his wife and then asked her to marry him. Yeah, I wouldn't think of that as a special place anymore. Well, for once... In the movie, they do have him address his wife and That's his right. feelings of his wife and his own shortcomings as a husband. Leading to the affair, potentially. Yeah, he even goes so far as to say that he feels like he murdered her. He didn't pull the trigger, but he forced her to be there at that moment in time. Uh-huh. And Red is like, all right, relax. Yeah, really. <laughs> You're jumping a little bit too far. But he says that he did love her and that she was so beautiful and you can see that he is like a real person and not a robot. And That's he right. had these feelings and now all of this time has passed. And the more time that goes by, the less impactful her affair probably feels. Yeah. Like that was just a blip on the overall feeling. So he chooses this place. Doesn't seem like he put anything there until after he leaves i would say it would be hard to understand how he would have the foresight for all of this but i want to make something clear and i know i've already referenced the novella a million times and that's because i just re-listened to it i had read it years ago but 
I just listened to it on Audible, so it's fresh. Lay it on me. The secret location in this field is tied in with a character that doesn't exist in the movie who was helping Andy on the outside before he went into prison. All right. Because there was a delay in him getting arrested, so he already had the foresight to start stashing money. Okay. Because he saw the writing on the wall, and he didn't want them to come and take everything. He didn't think he had a very strong case. Yeah. And that guy dies, but there's this secret location, and that's where a lot of his documents are being held. It does feel like if you're trying to make it easy for Red, this is not the place that you pick. It feels like it's a hardship for Red to get to this place. (laughs) Yeah, Buxton seems too far. Right. Darabont chooses to condense everything into the money laundering scheme, so that's where everything is tied into, including the new identity. Yes. And it just simplifies that story. It's kind of... The friggin' what's the Mike Judge movie? Office Space. Yeah, it's kind of like the Office Space scheme, just scheming a little bit off, sending it to the specific account. Uh, I don't know. About skimming that. off the top. The He's warden not skimming a little off the top. He basically just takes it all. Okay. Well, the warden is getting money though. Eventually, yeah. Yeah. He's laundering it. These are all accounts he's setting up to launder the money. But he has access to them because he created this other identity. That's right. The ins and outs of it aren't like super important. But instead of separating it all and having this other situation where Andy was like already preparing another life as if he knew what he was going to do all along, they just tie it all together. They get rid of the unseen character who dies, who helps him out from the outside in the beginning. And it simplifies it. So there's this rock that ultimately will be there and he's telling red to go there if he ever gets out but the way that he's talking is strange i'd say so there's some black volcanic glass that's what the rock will be in this field Mm -hmm. we'll talk more about the field later when we get there red is more than a little worried though andy's talking and acting strange his and the other guys's fears escalate when it's learned that andy had asked haywood for Six feet of rope, everyone Hmm. thinking about Brooks. Although I did find it to be odd because I was like, how do they know exactly what happened with Brooks? How did that news reach them? Well, it might have been in a paper that, yeah, I don't know. I don't (laughs) think they're putting Brooks' death in the paper. No. Some ex-con with no family who's like 90 years old. Yeah. Hangs himself in a shitty apartment. I don't think that's getting in the paper. Brooks leaves behind no one. No, he didn't seem to have anything. Right. God, it's bleak. That's basically where I'm headed. (laughs) (laughs) But Andy is not suicidal. Instead, tonight's the night, and he knows it. In the morning, during that day's roll call, the guards find Andy's cell empty. And we start learning piecemeal as to what exactly transpired. And I have to say that the way they do this is great. Oh, yeah. The way they slowly reveal every part of it, they set it up in the right way. You have Red over there in his cell just so nervous because he thinks that Andy's committing suicide Uh and then Andy doesn't come out in the morning and he's like, what the fuck? Yep. It starts the night before with the warden's shoes. Andy really, you know, invested in that shoe shine he's giving him. And then the siren goes off as the warden discovers those like old crappy shoes and you're sort of like, okay, what the fuck's going on? And you realize that Andy's already gone and he has this colossal head start. And the way that they present it is great. He's missing. 
the warden doesn't have his normal shine shoes. He has these shitty shoes that obviously <laughs> came from a prisoner. And irate Norton loses his shit inside Andy's cell and ultimately throws a rock at the poster of Raquel Welch hanging on the wall. The rock goes through the poster, revealing a tunnel that Andy dug with his rock hammer over the past 19 years. And you're just like, good lord, the amount of work. Yeah, and the way they show this is he had all the time in the world and he his favorite hobby became taking those handfuls at a time out into the yard and dropping them through his pants so that they sort of discreetly slide out of there. Yeah. All you've got is time. That's right. And if it doesn't work, what are they going to do? Throw you in prison? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Move you to a different cell. It's an amazing shot from inside the tunnel when they pull that poster off. That's right. And the faces and then like Morgan Freeman like leaning in the back like looking too. (laughs) It looks so great. I'm, I'm like drifting away from the microphone I know, I hear your imitating. Voice fade away. <laughs> I was imitating it. Yeah, that's right? right. And you realize for the first time maybe why it's so important that the Shawshank Redemption is told from Red's perspective. It's to keep this a mystery. Yeah. If we saw everything from Andy's perspective, we would have we known. Would known what he was doing every night. That's right. When did he sleep? Well, I guess he didn't want to. How much free range do you get? Do you get to just go back to your cell if you want? Yeah, I've had enough of the yard. Yeah, I'm ready to go lay down. I could use a nap. The only part that would suck is that they forced you to do some stupid job. Andy had to be in the laundry room, and Red had to do the wood shop. And I know, that would suck. Other than that, it would be great. <laughs> and the violence no and the rapes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the year is 1966. I believe in the novella, it does stretch into the 70s, which is why Linda Ronstadt is the poster. I actually think he's in prison longer in the novella than 19 years. Seems shocking. The night of the escape, Andy used the rope to tie his belongings to his leg in a bag as he went through the tunnel and then eventually the prison sewage pipe. He took Norton's suit and shoes, of which Andy was charged to clean and shine, as well as the real ledger containing proof of all of the money laundering. And we see Andy crawl through 500 yards of shit in this tunnel. It's a brutal finish to have to go through to really see this through. Imagine you get to the end of this fucking tunnel and there's a grate that you can't get through. (laughs) It seems like that was a risk. I would just let myself die right at the end there. Drowning in shit. Yeah. (laughs) A perfect metaphor for my life (laughs) yeah aside from the smell and the shit which is doesn't even need saying it's horrifying (laughs) we know we get it right i don't know that i'd be able to do it because i would have so much claustrophobia absolutely same here i'd be so terrified of getting stuck in there yeah and then like 500 yards is a long way to your point not just the shit thing i'm such a head case that when it came to these things i'd get 10 yards and just start panicking like no idea how much longer I need to go. Going the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> going further and then, into like, the building. At, at a certain point, you're just like, well, I can't crawl backwards and you can't turn around. You might be able to crawl backwards. I, well, I'm sure you tough. can. Right. You can physically crawl backwards, but once you reach a certain space, the idea of backtracking, just going backwards, I don't know. I'd probably just reach this point of insanity. <laughs> it would be like an inception. Yeah, it's rough. 
There was originally supposed to be more of the escape footage of him running across fields and hopping on a train or something. There was all kinds of different stuff. They ultimately uh, didn't use it or didn't shoot it. I think the mystery is better. And they conclude with him standing in the rain with his arms up into the air. It's the poster. It became this. He's found his salvation. Great shot. Although Deacons was critical of his own work here, even though it's become this iconic thing that everyone loves in this beloved movie. Yeah. He thought that he overlit the shot and he doesn't <laughs> really like it. Well, I get it. Darabont didn't agree. Yeah. So what you also have to consider is he has this giant rock that he uses to break into the sewage pipe and he has to wait until there's a lightning storm yeah. so that he can coincide slamming the rock onto the pipe with the thunder. It feels like it would take a lot of rock hits to really break into this pipe. I know. To fit his whole body. In. Yeah. Yeah. He's a big guy, as we pointed out. Yeah. But, you know, you have to suspend a little bit of disbelief. It's okay. a tall tale. I can do that. Yeah. While the search goes on for Andy, he poses as Randall Stevens, withdraws over $370,000, which is over $3 million <laughs> with inflation. Wow. Of the laundered money from several banks and then mails the ledger and other evidence of the corruption and murders at Shawshank to a local newspaper. Imagine getting that package. You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> Fuck, I'm going to have to write this long. <laughs> really? Yeah. You just sort of ignore it. <laughs> just put it in the trash. Yeah. <laughs> you have to vet all of that information to make sure it's real. Uh, what a project. They condense it all down. It's almost as if it appears in the paper the next day after the escape. <laughs> I don't think that you would be able to just print all of that as if it was. No, yeah, and obviously true. it's like, I mean, it becomes more than just a news story because the police get involved. The state police arrive at Shawshank and take Hadley into custody while Norton commits suicide. Yeah, pretty great scene. The way they do this is cool too because there's a last stand fake out. Right. Where he almost teases that he's going to just start shooting if they break his door down and then just turns the gun on himself because they do it in a way too where it's a revolver and he's loading every hole like every cartridge is filled right so you're like okay he's planning on using more than one bullet it's a pretty obvious choice to make but it's still perfect and so much fun because the warden is such an asshole yeah how do you think uh prison is going to be for hadley not good no but what I was saying was when the siren starts, the police siren, and at, right after he looks at the headline, and then he looks over at that knitted thing that his wife made that says, his right. judgment cometh and that right soon. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe for the first time in his stupid, miserable life, he's realizing what a fucking piece of garbage he is <laughs> because the walls are closing in on him. Yep. It's all coming to light. A moment of self-reflection. And you know that if the warden ended up in prison somewhere, even if it's not Shawshank, it's not going to be great. Yeah. He'll be the fat ass. (laughs) Imagine if this type of scenario were to happen, they would not put the warden in the prison that he was at the warden at. It just feels like they would never let that happen. (laughs) But holy shit. I don't know. In 1966, (laughs) maybe they would. That's true. Yeah. Red receives a blank postcard, but it's postmarked from fort hancock texas and red realizes that that is where andy has crossed over into mexico because andy is headed to ziwataneo the following year red is 
paroled after serving 40 years. Finally changing his approach to these parole hearings. Yeah. We've got a new guy in there, though. There's some new blood on the uh, parole board. Oh, yeah. Over 40 years, definitely. (laughs) Times are changing. Red takes a more blunt approach. That's the thing. We're probably at a point now where Red's crime happened before this new parole board dude was even born. Yeah. They've taken 40 years of his life, much longer than he had ever been out for, and they approve it. I get what they're going for here with his blunt, direct approach, but I don't know. He almost seems insulting to them at some some point. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I haven't learned anything. I don't give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there, too, in what he says. But I don't know. Maybe the parole board is not as bad, I guess, as somebody like the warden. But it just seems like the way that the authority figures are portrayed in this movie that they wouldn't take kindly to the way that he does this. I think just the times are changing in general with Warden Norton moving on from his life. Yeah, you have to imagine that life in Shawshank was vastly improved just because they were like, well, we can't have any weird scandals going on That's here right. Now. We need a, a less corrupt workforce running this place. Much like Brooks, Red struggles to adapt to life outside of prison and fears that he never will. He ends up in the same apartment with the same job, and things are not going great. At one point, he goes up to a pawn shop, and he's looking at the guns, and you think oh, he's going to buy a gun. But he yeah, buys that's a compass dark. instead. There's different ways you can get back to prison, by the way. You don't have to kill someone. The narration makes it seem that he's just buying a gun and that would be enough. Yeah. But how are you going to get caught? Okay, you know? right. Yes. You have to do something with the gun. Yeah, yeah. Probably to get caught with it. Instead, he goes to Buxton to find that tree. This, this tree is a journey to get here. I got to tell you. Yeah, this tree in Ohio, I think it was in Butler, Ohio became a place where fans would go to. It became like this big monument type place. I didn't realize there's all these trips just based around Shawshank Redemption. Well, did I mention it was number one on IMDb? You did, I mean, yeah. people People love this movie. love this yes. movie. <laughs> In a way that guys who aren't into movies usually don't love movies. This is just that movie That's for right. a lot of yeah. people. But the tree was hit by lightning and then eventually was destroyed and is now gone but i think there's a whole memorial at the wall there which i guess you can still find sort of sad yeah that tree is impressive it's a huge tree absolutely actually whenever it was hit by lightning someone was banging on a sewer pipe to (laughs) escape a prison nearby (laughs) in buxton red finds the rock by the tree under the rock is a small tin with cash and a letter inside The letter is from Andy, and Andy reiterates his desire for Red to join him in Zewatneo. And so... We'll do fishing charters. Doesn't that sound fun? Red violates his parole by traveling to Fort Hancock, Texas, and crossing the border into Mexico. Dear Red, if you're reading this, you've gotten out. And if you've come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. You remember the name of the town, don't you? I could use a good man to help me get my project on wheels. I'll keep an eye out for you and the chessboard ready. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things. 
and no good thing ever dies. I will be hoping that this letter finds you and finds you well. Your friend, Andy. Get busy living, or get busy dying. That's goddamn right. For the second time in my life, I'm guilty of committing a crime. Parole violation. Of course, I doubt they'll toss up any roadblocks for that. Not for an old crook like me. Or in God, Texas, please. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. He finally feels hope. He finds Andy on the beach, and they embrace as the film ends. They actually shot this in the U.S. Virgin Islands after the fact, because the original ending of the movie and the ending of the novella don't make it to Mexico. They stop with red on the way so you don't know for sure you Uh you don't get that final reunion moment right okay but the studio felt like it would be better to bring closure i think so i think we needed it yeah there was also a a part that was scrapped by darabont where red and andy recreate their dialogue about you know i heard you're a man who can find things and he's just like this is too too on the nose yeah too lame yeah, I think it works, though, for this movie. It gives you that final triumphant feeling. Absolutely. Darabont is no stranger to I think we, gut punch endings. I mean, we we know the ending of The Mist. He's not afraid yes. to leave you <laughs> feeling shitty. It's one of the moments where we like just need that final confirmation. It's that type of movie. Yeah. It's not The Mist. <laughs> yeah, Red shows up and they just pass a revolver around and shoot each other in the head. So the studio was willing to pay for them to go down to the Virgin Islands and shoot this extra stuff. They didn't actually film it in Mexico. That's your movie, folks. The Shawshank Redemption. One of the all-time dude movies. Absolutely. What else is there to say? I'm sure you can watch it on TNT right now. (laughs) (laughs) Do they still play it all the time? I don't know. I think the movies have updated. Yeah, I'm sure. It's probably The Departed. (laughs) I think they play movies that star the rock a me, lot that's true but like the idea of me just like perusing through channels something that never happens now yeah it's not a part of my life the way these basic cable 
movies were I I just remember all the time like TBS, TNT, USA were just in my regular rotation of channels that I was checking. Well, in the days before streaming and when you're younger and you don't really have a lot of money because you're a kid or something and you're not buying a lot of movies on DVD or whatever the the current thing is, you were much more willing to accept edited for TV movies because you just had to. That was just life. Yep. Now, if I want to watch The Shawshank Redemption, I would never watch it on TNT. I know. Why would I do that? The idea of watching something with commercials and just how much that ruins the experience too. I probably watch Royal Tenenbaums on Comedy Central like, I don't know, 10 times. Yeah, sometimes if I'm at my parents' house or something and my dad's watching a movie and I know for a fact it's streaming on something yeah, and he's watching it on cable, I'm like, why don't you just put it on Netflix or HBO or whatever? It's funny. It's of a different time and generation too. Like Lindsay's mom owns like all these movies, but she'll watch them on TV. She'll watch movies that she owns with commercials on TV. She calls Lindsay to let us know when certain movies are going to be on TV. <laughs> what movies? It's very cute. I mean, it's just like she loves like any big famous blockbuster movie. Anything that was big and captured the mainstream <laughs> audiences, she's a, a fan of. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some people, there probably is a certain comfort in the commercials. They like having the breaks. That's right. Get up and get a snack. Yeah. It's just how they've spent most of their lives watching these things, so they're just used to that. There's almost a pressure if it's streaming, because then you're like, well, we have to pause it or whatever if I'm going to go to the bathroom or get a drink, which is convenient for people who are used to it. But I don't know. Other people, it's just not their thing. I wouldn't have the patience anymore, because the commercial breaks for a movie like Shawshank Redemption, you're talking at least... Yeah, making this three hours, maybe three and a half. And the commercial breaks are so long. And I got to tell you, I also do get the part of, oh, well, I see this is on, so I'm just putting it on and then I'm getting sucked in. I can buy that because it's like when I'm left with just all the choices, I never want to watch any of them. But if you're just flipping through and something's on, the decision's been made for you, you can get sucked into it. Well, if you still have a cable package and then you pay for all the movie channels, then I definitely get that. Yeah. Because then you're flipping through all the different HBOs, all the different Showtimes, Cinemax, Stars, etc. Then you're doing that same thing, but you don't have the commercials to deal with. So it's like a double win. But who is paying for a regular cable package plus all that other shit now whenever you can there's so much cheaper ways and they all are streaming so then it's like all on demand right that's still something that belongs to a completely different era all right (laughs) now that we've talked about cable this episode long enough for you did we do it justice darabont getting that big check probably after his lawsuit over the walking dead and as we said he worked with Stephen King on some other stuff. If you haven't seen The Mist, I would check it out. It's yeah. pretty great. <laughs> it is a shocking movie with a shocking ending that's really? way more bleak than the Stephen King story it's based on, which yeah, does crazy. not end like that. <laughs> and the monsters and shit are fucking wild in that movie. That yeah. is like a cool movie. It is, yeah. I wish that they didn't do the part where you knew what happened at the end. I kind of oh, just yeah, yeah. wish it just ended with the car sequence. 
But that makes it even worse. I know it is. It's like a (laughs) second away from being saved. Right. (laughs) The Green Mile I watched once. Yeah. I remember thinking it was okay, but never having any desire to return. Yeah, I saw it back around when it was popular. But It was also a prison Stephen King movie, although there is a supernatural element to it. That's true. I remember Tom Hanks has... Shawshank, is it? Like a a urinary tract infection or something. And what was that big guy's name who's passed away? Uh, Michael Clark Duncan. Yeah. He like grabs him, grabs his dick and like heals him or something. (laughs) Do you remember that? No. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks, no recommendations this week. This one's gone on long enough. So happy Thanksgiving. We didn't even mention that at the start. Oh yeah, that's right. The Thanksgiving episode. This is a special Thanksgiving episode. Number 250, believe it or not. Thank you so much for listening. Follow us on Twitter at GreatestPod. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. Let us know if you'd like a sticker. Right now, the plan is to just keep coming back with new material next week. Yeah, we literally driving myself insane with the amount of work I'm creating for myself with this podcast. Have a little of that Andy Dufresne, hope against hope type attitude with this show you know we just keep going we hope that someone one day will care despite (laughs) the negativity despite the lack of interest (laughs) we just keep plowing through the lack of interest is my prison yeah (laughs) no honestly this podcast is my prison this podcast is my life i actually think i referred to this podcast as a prison in the last episode so now we're back to back Follow Folks. us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. And I think that will do it, right? That's right. All right. So to all you ass clowns out there, happy Thanksgiving, and we'll talk to you soon. Baby, you don't know what you're saying because you're a victim of
Derek and I got married. One night, this other Derek appears in our bed. The real Derek is lying down next to me. Other Derek sits right up out of him. It startled me. I knew that was not Derek. And so I asked this critter, who are you? Because he clearly wanted to have sexual relations. And I said, he said, come on, I'm your husband. I said, who are you? And he had the nerve to claim to be Ahasuerus, Xerxes. Well, other Derek seriously wanted to invite me to use my free will to do something that was going to pull me away from God. So this last time, I knew he was really desperate. And I asked him again, who are you? He told me the same answer. And I said, I'm not going with you. This was an internal dialogue. Finally, I said, I've had enough in my mind. I reached up. I grabbed his face. And I said, you are a liar. And Jesus is real. And I pulled that face off. And beneath it was a reptile. And he had little creatures with him this time. He brought these little halfling creatures, and they looked like, I don't know, gargoyles. They were very reptilian as well. So beneath that face of Derek was a reptilian serpentine creature, probably similar to what was visiting the Anasazi. Wow. 